Welcome to all you fellow travelers in the multiverse of minds that I'm connecting together on the Into the Impossible podcast. It's a treat to be with you, and this is an awesome time to be a cosmologist. There's so much cool stuff coming, and sometimes we forget to really pay homage or homage. No, I think it's homage to the field that underlies all of science and natural laws, and that is philosophy. And so today, it's a great thrill to have not only a philosopher, but one of my colleagues at UC San Diego, a friend, Craig Callender, who's a professor of philosophy and does a great deal to inspire the very, very currency of the imagination economy, and that's curiosity. So today's episode is going to focus on his thoughts based on his book, A Graphic Guide, which is not graphic in the, uh, in the risque sense, but it's a graphic guide about time. And it's really delightful, kind of a graphic novel, comic book, with real serious topics about all the fun and interesting themes we explore on the Into the Impossible podcast. And this was a particular treat because we did it in person right here in uh, UC San Diego in my office. That was really fun. And life is getting back to normal. Nature is healing. Uh, and so you're going to learn a lot about his approach to thinking about time, some very interesting models of the universe in which time may not behave the way it does in our universe. Uh, and interestingly enough, some of those are held by some of the greatest minds in human history and philosophy, people like Kurt Gödel, who we speak about quite often, and many other people uh, as well that you'll learn about in today's episode. So there's some really fun tidbits that you'll take away in this show. And it's just a delight to have a real, honestly, goodness, philosopher on the show. Uh, let me know what you think. If you want to hear uh, more of these in-person interviews, more interviews about the basics of, of rational thinking, of time, of the underlying philosophy behind the laws of nature. Uh, I think you'll like this episode. And give me some feedback. There's not too many ways to do it. If you uh, do listen, you can find this on Audible. You can find this on iTunes, and you can leave reviews in both of those places. I'm sure you could do it other ways. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, where you'll see a video of this interview with a lot of really, really cool background B-roll footage and footage of us getting together and just hanging out as two scholars are wont to do, uh, absent some, some libations, because this was early in the day when we did this interview. Uh, so give me your feedback. I love reading your reviews. Here's a recent one I got on iTunes from someone named Tell It Like It Is, Chris. Thank you, Brian, for presenting these fascinating, stimulating, and mind-expanding interviews with such diverse range of the thinkers and doers of our time. See, time. As an interested layman, I feel privileged to listen in on their thoughts and ideas. Brian's enthusiasm for new and exciting ideas is infectious. And I hope it is, although infectious uh, doesn't always have the greatest connotation these days. Uh, but now that many of us are fully vaccinated and getting back to normal, uh, hopefully this is infectiousness in the best possible sense. So um, if you want to help me out, you share the podcast with your friends. Uh, give me a rating or review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, rather. Remember, you have to 
follow the podcast now. Apple changed as they are mercurially want to do. Uh, so you have to actually go to the podcast, search my name, Brian Keating, click on the three dots at the top near the three dots. There's a plus sign that'll subscribe it. You can do auto downloading and then scroll down and you can leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. We're up to 306, up from 100 just a year ago. It's phenomenal. We're expanding faster than the universe and my waistline and both of those are expanding rapidly. So now sit back, relax, and enjoy this journey into the impossible with my friend and colleague, Professor Time himself, Craig Callender. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It is a great thrill to have my colleague and, uh, and friend, Craig Callender of the Department of Philosophy at UC San Diego and the director of the Institute for Practical Ethics. Is that correct? Is that the correct title for it? That's correct. Wow. Well, you're joining us uh, on the Into the Impossible podcast at the end of February. We are both vaccinated, at least uh, partially vaccinated and COVID-free in case our boss, Pradeep Koshla or Gavin Newsom might be watching. Who knows? He, he sometimes tunes in, I, I know for sure. Uh, but it's a great thrill to have you here. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. It's w wonderful to be here. Yeah, we've interacted for at least the last 10 years on various thesis committees and other affairs. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a book that I've had uh, been reading for several years because it's so much fun to read and reread. And that's uh, Time, a Graphic Novel. I believe that's the title of that, of that book. And then you have another book that we'll talk about as well. Uh, so the first question I have for you is, um, what made you think, was it tenure that allowed you the freedom to write a graphic novel? Are graphic novels considered serious academic fare? Oh, uh, that's a good question. And, and one you'll, uh, the answer you'll relate to. Yeah, so I was living in London and I just, uh, we had just bought a house, my first house, and we had just had our first child. <laughs> and I thought, well, I can't really get any work done with the new, brand new baby. Uh, in the house. But the baby would go to sleep like from two to four in the afternoon every day. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll write this cartoon book because I can't really do any kind of real research. And also, uh, you know, I thought, you know, I, I work so much on time. If I need to go to a library or look up stuff, then it's already getting too hard for a, comp for a cartoon book. And so I was able to just sort of punch the thing out <laughs> during nap times <laughs> for the first you know, month or two of, of, uh, first one's uh, existence. Wow. <laughs> and now he's all grown up, right? He's yes. about to start college That's or he's right. in college. Yeah, he just graduated. Wow. Oh, he just graduated. Yeah. Wow. That is uh, true what they say. Time does fly. It does. <laughs> and I, although I say, and, and you're the perfect person to ask this of, I, I think that time is, is super relative in that uh, various increments of time fly, but other aspects of time drag on. And if you remember back to the days when he was in diapers or whatever, uh, sometimes you would like, as the other cartoon novel called Go the F to Sleep yeah. <laughs> uh, mentions, that sometimes you just want him to go to bed. And that period between you know, dinner time, bath time, story time, bedtime, falling asleep, getting up, wanting water, that, take, that drags on. And yet then you turn around and you're like, he's a graduate student? Like, <laughs> right. uh, How is it the psychological arrow of time? How is that uh, relative? It would seem that you could have at most one constant, one thermodynamic error, we'll talk about one cosmic error of time. It's not like there's multiple ones of those, or are there? Yeah, there are many arrows. And regarding the psychological experience of time, you know, when we talk about time flowing fast or slow or that, 
I mean, there's so many variables going on. And then one, one of the big ones, of course, is whether you're, it's, uh, you know, something that has been encoded in memory and it's a kind of retrospective judgment or is it one, you know, so about ongoing moments. And, you know, so this is something that's very familiar to many of us who are fortunate enough to just, you know, have the pandemic be such that we are stuck at home and in the same routine. We think, you know, how could it be Friday again already? It just went by like that. And of course, then we're doing a kind of retrospective judgment over the week. Basically, nothing happened, you know, mm-hmm. compared to the previous week. And so if you think of each tick of the sort of psychological clock as being a kind of, uh, you know, measuring salient events, there weren't that many. And so there weren't that many top, uh, ticks. So it feels like it's, uh, you know, going really fast. On the other hand, in the moment, you know, it might be feeling like going really slowly. You know, it might be seem to drag on. And so it depends on what's going on. Uh, of course, you know, for other people in the pandemic, it, you know, if you're a nurse at a hospital or something, it might be a very, very different experience. And so this, uh, I would always say, you know, when it comes to the psychological, uh, you know, how long the psychological under, uh, feeling of duration, as far as I can see, it, it varies with every single variable that's ever been measured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you just had orange juice? Uh, you know, have you had co- coffee, alcohol, uh, mind-altering drugs? <laughs> it, it changed all of those things to mm-hmm. change your sense of duration. And of course, you know, there's uh, no one better to talk about the peregrinations in time than uh, than Einstein, who is a character in the book, in the graphic novel, as well as uh, Galileo. And then furthermore, we're going to talk about uh, Kurt Gödel as oh, well, right. because little known, we know about his incompleteness theorem. And we know, in my mind, at least people in physics, you often hear about like someone so has physics envy or a field has physics envy, you know, re- recapitulating uh, Freud's penis envy or, or what have you. Uh, and, um, but people say, oh, so and so field has physics envy. But I think physics has math envy uh-huh. and maybe math has philosophy envy. So <laughs> I want to start off in that provocative vein. Um, the fact that we can't really prove something in physics. I mean, you're free to pr- please uh, disabuse me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we don't prove things correct in physics. We can prove things wrong in physics. We can falsify things as, as Popper uh, provided this demarcation hypothesis. Uh, but on the other hand, we can't prove things as well as a mathematician can prove something. And I think now uh, is, is sort of needed more than ever, the clarification of what science uh, is and what pseudoscience is and what it is not. And I wonder if you can Sort of talk from a philosopher's point of view, but also I see you as a very physics adjacent philosopher, very deep training. Uh, maybe before we move into that, I'm sorry to be so uh, jumping around in time and space, but you inspire me. Uh, first, tell us what is your background exactly? How long have you been here? Where were you before here? What's your world line as you talk about in the book? What's your past light cone look like? Okay, uh, that's a very unlikely world line, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was, uh, so neither. My parents, you know, went to college, and so I'm not sort of coming up in a, where academia was sort of a thing I would think of doing. Um, and I was supposed to be a printer. Hmm. So my great grandfather, grandfather, and father were all printers. And so you know, just do a, a little bit of induction on that, and all the mail calendars were printers. <laughs> so it seemed clear what I was going to do. But then this thing got invented and became popular called the computer. Mm. And mm. the uh, you know the print industry did not seem to be such a great 
uh, industry to go into anymore. You know, this kind of skilled labor that was special to printing was then not going to be valued as much because you could do something almost as good for so much cheaper with a computer. And so then, you know, given that background, it seemed like I should be either a doctor or a lawyer. And so I started off in biology and chemistry. Uh, but boy, you know, once I hit college, there were so many interesting things. And I just bounced around from one major to another. So I almost became a math major, mm-hmm. uh, but I almost became an art major. I did become a psychology major mm. for a brief, brief, brief moment. Where were you a student? Uh, Providence College. Oh, Providence. so they gave me a uh, yeah. So they gave me a scholarship, which nice. is nice. Yeah, and uh, you yeah, grew and up then, in Rhode Island. Also, sorry, I'm from Rhode Island. Oh, which yeah. part? Uh, Providence. So I was in Brown. Yeah. But so yeah, yeah we probably uh, overlapped at one point or another, maybe right. on a home visit or something like that. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Brown's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So um, it was Providence. Providence is a gem of a school. And so you went so, from there. Yeah. Um, so then mm-hmm. I, uh, but I always had, you know, yeah. So I would get uh, my uncle would give me. Uh, uncle and aunt, they would give me uh, gift certificates to the Brown University bookstore, mm-hmm. and I would I was always reading. It was a great bookstore. And my mother is still, but especially back then, obsessed with science fiction, mm. and so I would read a lot of that too because there was a lot of that in the house. And so this always kind of put me in this more kind of philosophy of physics uh, trajectory. And then I went to uh, uh, Rutgers University, which was one of the uh, it was one of the best places to go. It still is in yeah. philosophy, mm-hmm. and they happen to have all these great philosophers of physics there. And so I just oh, and then I went. So I, yeah. So what really triggered things then to, to go into philosophy of physics was I went to a popular talk by David Merman, mm. uh, where he was explaining Bell's theorem and doing one of those kind of simple coloring theorems, so, so, so anybody could understand it. Right. And I, I walked out of that lecture and I just couldn't believe it. And I thought, well, if you're interested in philosophy and metaphysics in the world, here's this experiment that is like really experimental metaphysics. It's so interesting. And I basically dropped everything and then started just reading quantum mechanics, mm. reading it, reading it. And then happened to be in a place where I could, you know, where, where it was just fantastic. I mean, all these great people, uh, not just at Rutgers, but at Princeton and in New York, who work in this area. And so it was really just really super lucky that I was able to be there and do that. And then after that, um, did you have to, what's typical in philosophy? Is it postdoc or what was your thesis, uh, by the way? What was the title of your thesis? Or uh, explaining case? Time's Arrow. Okay. All right. So it was about, uh, and a lot of it was about quantum mechanics and Time's Arrow. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, in philosophy, well, it's changing a little bit the discipline now where there are more postdocs and things like that. But back then, it was crueler or kinder, depending on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. You're either going to, if you work, especially if you worked in a kind of niche field like philosophy of physics, uh, you were probably either going to go to some really, you know, a research school, because a small liberal arts college doesn't need a right. philosopher of physics, or you're going to work at McDonald's. <laughs> one the, and right. so it's your choice. one or the other. And since there weren't any postdocs, you found out fast. Right. <laughs> uh, and so I uh, was lucky. You, you know, so you mentioned uh, Popper. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Popper died, I think, in 94. And in 96, I took a job at the London School of Economics. And they had that Center for Philosophy of Science mm-hmm. that uh, Popper founded, I guess. And... Uh, 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, and then uh, at some point I got sick of uh, the rain and came here. <laughs> so I've been here for over 20 years. Oh, wow. So you're uh, a, a longer timer than myself. I got here in 2004 uh, and I became aware of you not too long after that, actually, coming and being in some committees. And I met the, our colleague, David Meyer, and, and others mm-hmm. through you. Um, and of course, you have uh, you know, a gift for not only researching and mentorship in this field, but also in terms of leadership and authorship, which I think is an important part of what we do as, as scientists and as um, as as public servants, in a sense, and kind of demystifying science and distinguishing it from science and pseudoscience. And I was excited to learn of your upcoming course, which I may sit in on. I've I've done that before with some of our our fellow faculty. As I mentioned, you're my first UCSD. You're not my first UCSD fellow professor. You're my first non-relative UCSD <laughs> professor. So there's been some nepotism. I'm hoping to have our chancellor and other people come on the show. Uh, but it's it's always a treat to do things in person. And I was saying beforehand, you know, or earlier in this conversation, you know, we kind of have this envy of mathematicians, at least some of us in physics, because at least there's the bounds of what can be proven. And actually things can be proven. You can prove Fermat's last theorem, right? You can prove the Pythagorean theorem. But you can't prove that, you know, Einstein is right to arbitrary, you know, accuracy. Um, so I think that we use Popper as kind of a substitute for Gödel. And I wonder if you could kind of, um, you know, distinguish for me or, or tell me if I'm wrong in that sense. As scientists, we kind of rely so much on Popper's falsification, demarcation, and maybe you can explain what that is, that we lose sight of the fact that even Popper didn't fully support demarcation and, and falsification as the sine qua non of what science is. So how did he get to be so elevated? How did Popper get to this exalted level where people will say <laughs> things like string theory and things are not only not correct, they're bad for science, they're bad science, they might as well be pseudoscience. Mm. Yeah, so it's kind of funny because uh, Popper is, you know, what you go to for uh, demarcation. So you want to separate the good science from the bad, good, good theory from bad theory. Popper was, of course, a creature of his time. You know, you had in philosophy all this kind of, you know, Hegel and all this stuff, which is very hard to make sense of. You don't even know if it's making sense sometimes. <laughs> But then also he saw, uh, yeah, not not Marxism so much the economic mm-hmm. side, but the sort of Marxist theory, dialectical, the materialism. dialectical materialism, mm-hmm. like you and uh, and Freud. He thought all of this is nonsense, and then you know came up with a, a you know this demarcation criterion of falsifiability. Um, and of course for him, you know Einstein's uh, the Eddington experiment in 1919. For, you know, uh, vindicating, uh, confirming Einstein's, uh, uh, you know, the uh, bending of light around the sun. This was amazing, you know, because that was a bold, risky hypothesis, right? right. It's, it's not, it was not a given that that was going to turn out that way. And he thought, you know, you look at that and then you look at Freud and, right. you know, you notice astrology, the difference, right? astrology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so Popper's super famous for this. No philosopher of science likes the demarcation criterion from Popper. Mm. We all can't stand it. Mm. Uh, 
And it's kind of funny that it gets used so much in the outside world. Yeah. But then the philosophy of science, uh, we don't use it at all. Uh, you know, it's very problematic, you know, because you can think of, well, first there's the a bull part and falsifiable. Is it, what, what makes it, uh, you know, mm-hmm. not just unfalse, not false, but false, but <laughs> unfalsifiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in some sense, you could make any theory, uh, falsifiable or unfalsifiable if you tinker right. with them. Also, you can think of a lot of things. Yeah. So like string theory as it's coming up, well, it's not, it's not, you can't directly subject it to empirical confirmation. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, the goal always was, you know, was to do that. And so is it unfalsifiable or not? Also, you can think of things, you know, astrology is just false. Right. But it's not, but right. Yeah. So, it's, so it, therefore it's science, right? Yeah, so therefore it's yeah, science. I have a big problem with that as well. And so it's not very good. Or the earth is flat. Okay. That's my theory. Okay. Yeah. I can falsify it with simple measurements. Therefore it's scientific. I mean, it's nonsense. Yeah. So it's not a very good criterion. And so now I think, you know, there's sort of, I don't really know exactly, but, you know, I, I think most philosophers of science think that there's like kind of set of things that you look for in a theory. And, you know, they, you know, they might be, you know, how unif- unified they are, how, how, how much, how much, how fruitful they are, how, how predictive they are, mm-hmm. and you'll allow for tolerances and all mm-hmm. those things. And there's some sort of rough metric we use when we do this. Right. I think in, there's a kind of more like picture I get, I think you get more from history and not so much philosophy where, where they really think of it as more like just at a time is our stamp of disapproval. On that, right? You know, and that changes with time through fashion, history. Yeah. yeah, so it's sort of fashion that so we use it as just a kind of insult, you know, blah. Right. <laughs> right. Popper said, which is an appeal to authority, yeah. which we don't hold. Yeah. To so in Popper didn't anyway. like. So you know, so they would then interpret Popper's thing as basically that Popper didn't like Freud. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. And, <laughs> um, and you know, but if you had this kind of multi-criterialist thing, you'd say, well, Freud's theory didn't actually. Wasn't successful in predicting anything. It didn't fail in all sorts of different ways. Flexible, flexible, flexible. Mm -hmm. yeah. So there's like these kind of signs of when you think of really cheesy pseudoscience, uh, you know, uh, then you see this kind of overly flexible. Mm -hmm. uh, Can accommodate anything. anything. What I always like to point out is, you know, Popper hated. Uh, he hated astrology, or you know, this is the thing. He hated Freud, as you just said, or he was against Freud. He was against astrology. He was against dialectic materialist and then Marxism. And then, if you go to like most countries, on, there are far more Marxist socialist countries on Earth than there are capitalist democracies on Earth. There are far more, you know, psychologists in, in the world practicing dream interpretation. All the things he hated, and you can find much more ink in your, you know, Sunday newspaper about astrology than astronomy. Uh, and so it's like even Popper has been falsified by this, yeah, you know, exactly. the durability yeah. of the of I the love it. That's subject. A good point. Yeah. <laughs> so, but again, yeah, I mean, we're kind of you know peering out of this dark cave and, and looking after we see these shadows and trying to make sense of the world. Do you think that there is a value? I mean, we often hear pejoratives, you know, about philosophy, about you know, philosophy of science. You know, people varying degrees of the old canard that you know, science needs philosophers the way that you know, birds need ornithologists or something like that. But you know, I find philosophy to be so rich and so um, and just so enjoyable. And I feel that to not teach it, or you know, even worse, to be pejorative, insulting towards it. I think we do our physics students a disservice. What, what do you think about this? How can we make it 
more tra- besides buying all your books and, and, and using them in our classes. But but in reality, how can we dispel this rumor that that philosophy is is not useful? Imagine if birds were 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 equipped with knowledge of ornithology. Yeah, I mean they would really they would really <laughs> have it made. On Earth, you know, if they if they knew their own <laughs> behavior patterns and all of that, they they would really just kill it. Even right. you know, uh, so yeah, I think. Uh, I, I think philosophy is really important, and in, in particular when it comes to physics, because I think you know what has happened, and it's weird and unfortunate. I think, and, I, and I'm not a sociologist, so I don't know if this picture is exactly right. But if you look at, um, you know, you look at some of the greats in physics, uh, from you know, so Boltzmann, Maxwell, Einstein, all these people, they read a lot of philosophy, you know, so. Einstein talks about, you know, Hume, David Hume inspired him. Uh, Galileo and Descartes. Galileo, Descartes, right? They yeah. lived in our contemporaneous. And so you've had, this was hugely important. And then you go, uh, but it was part of, a lot of philosophy is part of the German uh, training. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the theoretical physicists were German. Right. Now, you know, you go to, post, now fast forward to after the war. Mm-hmm. Now America is an ascendancy in the sciences. You have the government putting a ton of money into the sciences. Who's not popular? The Germans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then you have people who are like some of the greatest philosophers I think have ever existed going around saying they don't like philosophy, like Feynman. Yeah. So Feynman is philosophically gifted, but he would again and again say he doesn't like philosophy right. as he's basically doing it. Right. And then you have, you know, like Hawking in his last book. He starts off with, you know, philosophy is dead. Right. And then the whole book is basically a, 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 some philosophy of science. Right. Where he's got this kind of multi-picture, you know, <laughs> given up on a grand unified theory and this kind of multi-picture thing. It's all philosophy of science. Yeah. But he doesn't know it's philosophy of science and he says he hates philosophy. Yeah, he disparages yeah. the thing that he's actually in, uh, engaging in. And so you have this kind of, uh, you know, shut up and calculate attitude happen coinciding with this sort of sociological pressures, but then also but the rise of grants and all that as mm-hmm. well, where it's harder to hard to get a grant for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would Einstein have got a grant for his, <laughs> either of you know either of his relativity, either special or general relativity? Right. You know, probably not. Right. Uh, he would have gotten it for his quantum mechanical uh, misgivings, I'm sure, because that those turned out not to be fruitful. Yeah, and so ways. I see the other side. So I see the people who are leaving physics. I mean, almost by you know, by definition, I end up seeing the people who are leaving physics because they start off in physics and then they are not satisfied that they don't get to talk about you know what uh, you know what quantum mechanics means and different interpretations and mm-hmm. detail in quantum mechanics and, and that. Um, so, I mean, to I don't get I don't get refugees from cosmology or right. astrophysics. Yeah. Not too much because uh, it's so <laughs> philosophical, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, sometimes they, it's they meta. can scratch that itch. Yeah, whereas, because we you know. As Hoyle used to say, you know, all these cosmologists, you know, are in love with the Big Bang because it satisfies their philosophical needs or their theological needs to believe in Genesis' account of creation, which is just, you know, <laughs> so, but I did find an, a more ancient uh, kind of upbraiding of philosophy in, uh, in Galileo's Sidereus Nuncius, where he talks about the telescope, which he was using at the time to, in his claim, resolve all these stars in the Milky Way, the glow of the Milky Way's milkiness into individual stars. And he says, thus we have proven with visible, via visible certainty, 
these issues that have for so many generations vexed philosophers. In other words, he's saying like, you guys could speculate, but one use of the telescope will prove to you that it's right. And I point out in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, he was actually wrong about that. It was confirmation bias. And he, mm-hmm. we can't resolve all the, all the milkiness of the Milky Way into stars, with no matter how big your telescope is, despite what Galileo said, because it's not made of stars. It's glowing dust. You know, mm-hmm. The villain of my book, as I gave you a little there grain you know. of earlier today. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's, it, it has some historical precedent, but, uh, but the fact that I always feel like by not observing it or not, you know, um, learning from philosophers and, and philosophers of all kinds, that we're, you know, we're kind of doing a disservice to to our scientists. But you know, it's, it's so much to teach them. It's like, do we require that they have a, a course in this? One thing I'm I'm curious about is ethics because we I've never taken a course or something in ethics, and you are the director of the practical center for practical ethics. First of all, what is a scientist, you know, scientifically inclined? You know, person who wrote a uh, you know very physicy kind of thesis and has written books you know in great detail in physics as you have, um, where where does ethics come into play and what makes you and how how many hats can you possibly wear? Yeah, it's uh, well that's a question I ask myself all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I would say you know so sometimes I, I joke that it's, you know it was a sort of midlife crisis, but that's okay. not really true because because you know so I've taught environmental ethics for. 20 years or, or more. Mm-hmm. So I've always had this kind of teaching interest. And I, I guess I just thought of it as kind of, you know, returning some of what I've been given, where, you know, if all you're worried about is empty space times. Like, like, like you know, if I'm just interested in vacuum space times <laughs> with no people or problems or planets <laughs> or particles or anything in them, then, you know, it's nice to, at the undergraduate level, to be doing something more than uh, only that. But and then the opportunity really rose, you know, came came to me to uh, where I saw I was department chair and I saw, you know, here we are, UC San Diego. I, I forget where we are. The the sixth biggest recipient of research aid in the country. Yeah. So we're one of the people don't appreciate this, but people on your podcast, hearing your podcast, should know. I mean, UCSD is rivals any school yeah. in terms of its research output, and. But we don't have really that much ethics, and you know, it's very. It was very much a STEM. It's very much a STEM school, mm-hmm. and if you think of all of the kind of innovation and that that happens here, a lot of it, you know, holds great promise and is just amazing. But on the other hand, you know, some of it comes with some perils as well, and so we're sort of by not dealing with some of it in house, we're sort of externalizing and outsourcing the, our social responsibility, right? And so. Yeah, I went around uh, campus giving these kind of talks, talking about, uh, you know, so we were founded by, I got to have dinner with him once when, when I first came with Herb York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he worked uh, in the Manhattan Project. Right. But then he's worked on nuclear deterrence the rest of his right. life. There's a book about that. Paul Ravel discovers climate change. Then he comes back from Harvard and uh, becomes a professor of social policy, trying to do, think of things, ways to deal with it. And so we have this great, in our DNA, this great history of these great scientists finding these amazing, you know, making these amazing discoveries and innovation, mm-hmm. but then also trying to deal with the social repercussions. And so I thought this was a good message and it, it sort of sold and we got this institute and we've been trying to develop that institute. And, uh, and then as I've been doing that, so maybe the same has happened with you with the... Uh, Science Fiction Center and, and this podcast, 
you know, if you spend a certain amount of time on something, then you get drawn into it more. Yeah. And so now I've started working a little bit more in, in practice. So now my research and teaching sides have blurred a bit. And so now I'm starting to work a little bit more in, in practical ethics. And in terms of <clears throat> the meaning of that, of that phrase, practical ethics, is it that application to the research side of what UCSD does? Or is it you know, categorical imperatives and, and kind of bigger picture things? What, what uh, we're trying to make it more uh, yeah, practical in the sense of you know, connecting to science that's done on campus. That, that, well, it doesn't have to be done on campus, sure. but it often is. So, for instance, you know, we, we have a, uh, we've had a, a great partnership with the biologists working on gene drives. Mm. So gene drives are a way of modifying, uh, genetically modifying an organism. Not like old-fashioned stuff where you just modify the individual. It either passes the trait on or it doesn't. This one, you can force it to pass it on. So it unleashes this kind of genetic chain reaction, irreversible chain reaction. Mm. So it can be used for amazing things, you know, so it, you know, they're working on making them, uh, making it so that uh, mal- uh, mosquitoes can't transmit malaria. Mm. And then all the children won't be able to yeah. do that. And mm. they'll just keep going and keep going. Mm. So it'd be amazingly efficient. Right. In principle, it would never work this way. But in principle, you could drop one mosquito, you know, in right. uh, an infected <laughs> area in Africa. And yeah. all the mosquitoes eventually would be sterilized, uh, sterilized or or. or this was before, unable to transmit it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the, that's the ideal right. you know, thing that won't really work. But, uh, but of course, you know, this will change the have ecological repercussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the, what is the long term uh, consequences of having this kind of um, genetic technology out there in nature? Uh, so we have you know partnerships with them, and uh, we will. Look at sort of all the different ethical aspects of that. Mm-hmm. It could be all sorts of things, you know, autonomous cars, um, brain organoids, uh, all, all sorts right. of things. Yeah, the kind of stuff we're working on in the Arthur Z. Clark Center for Human Imagination. Um, and so, uh, getting back to you know some of these figures that I have figure you know finger puppets of. We're working on yours, a calendar uh, finger puppet as well, but. Um, one of the characters is Kurt Gödel, who spends an awful lot of time uh, in the book, at least, talking about his universe. And I want to, because it is um, is relatively unfamiliar to many of the listeners out there who know the kind of you know Friedman, Robertson, Walker, you know, kind of description, Lemaitre, Big Bang. But the this type of universe, which is very special that Gödel thought about, um, is is very much not not in vogue. Uh, maybe for good reason, but I want to explore some of the different space times that you do talk about. It's sterile, though they may be, like these mosquitoes, hopefully, uh, will eventually be uh, be sterile. I've always wondered, you know, what, what is the purpose of the mosquito? You know, if you could, if you could figure out why is there a mosquito? Turns out there's a book written about it. It's called like um, you know, Apex Predator or something, because it's you know, people ask what animal in Africa has killed the most human beings, and it's like the hippo, you know, the tiger. No, oh, yeah. it's it's the mosquito. And uh, and the guy goes through like some of the ways that the mosquito changed history, including in the Revolutionary War, when apparently you know the swamps and eastern seaboard or whatever of America uh, were uh, riven with mosquitoes, and the British had less immunity to malaria or something, or they didn't they didn't have quite I don't I don't know the details, but apparently the mosquito played a role in the and the victory by the colonists against the, the British Empire. So 
<laughs> I know this book. Uh, uh, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, but, uh, it's a it's a very fascinating because everything that yeah, there could be these downstream effects. You talk a lot in your book in the graphic novel about time travel. You know, can you go back and and uh, you know and 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 kill the dinosaurs? Uh, you know, before the asteroid, or give them a space program before the asteroid hits, or or go back and kill your grandfather before mm-hmm. he meets your grandmother. Um, and so all those all these kind of paradoxes. But I want to focus a little bit more. First, on the top level, on the cosmological side of things, because a lot of my audience is interested in that, can you explain a little bit about Gödel's universe, why it was important, and why he allegedly on his deathbed asked his attendee or whoever was there, what about the universe? Did they find it to be rotating? (laughs) This is a story that I've I've read, uh, actually, in in a book about Gödel. All right. So people still do write books about this rotating universe. So what's the appeal of it? What was the idea behind it? Yeah, so... Yeah, Gödel was at the Institute for uh, Advanced Study at Princeton, and he lived near Einstein, yeah. and they would walk home together. And so Gödel was not a physicist, but he was the greatest logician of all time. Mm-hmm. In fact, before uh, the Gödel incompleteness theorem, which is the greatest theorem in logic of all time, he was already the greatest logician of all time. All right. And then he did that, so he's like got extra. Anyway, so what I'm trying to say is. He's really, really smart. <laughs> uh, so he's you know, yeah, talking to Einstein. too smart for his own good, right? Because oh, he yeah. tried to get, he uh, talked to Einstein when he was becoming a citizen, and allegedly said there's a contradiction yeah, in yeah. the United States Constitution, logical inconsistency. And Einstein said, ah, keep that to yourself yeah, yeah. until after citizenship. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, go on. So he was talking to Einstein about cosmology um, and space time. Yeah, and then he, he discovered a solution. And, you know, it's very, you know, if you, I don't know how many of you, uh, you know, listeners know, I mean, the Einstein field equation is very, you know, it looks so pretty, you know, uh, you know, uh, science is so pretty and beautiful and elegant. And, uh, you know, because you've got basic, you know, G equals eight pi T. Yeah. You think, oh, that's beautiful. That's really, it's, you know, very, I don't know what, like a hundred <laughs> something uh, partial, couple partial yeah, differential, differential equations. equations. <laughs> so if you solve it, you know, you get your name. After it, right. and he came up with this solution, which I think is it's possibly the coolest solution in terms of uh, because it has great cool uh, consequences of what you can do. So, in particular, you could time travel through any from any point to any other point in Gödel space time. Uh, but the uh, what's cool about it is it, it doesn't happen from any kind of cheesy math tricks. So, like you could take you know if you took a piece of paper. He said, let this be space-time. You know, this part is time, this part is space. And then I roll it and I attach these two. Uh, then you can say, well, I could time travel by going around like that. And that's cheesy because you did this kind of cut and paste. Right. Uh, Wormholes. And- but now the girl space-time is it's topologically Euclidean. So there's nothing. No holes. It's no. simply connected. Yeah, so there's no, no holes no. or anything like that. Coffee cup genus number is zero, right? It's even uh, temporally orientable, which means that at every single event, you could draw a little arrow and have a consistent arrow drawing everywhere. To the future or in space? Uh, the vector is, to, is yeah, vector time-like. time-like. Uh, and so, yeah, so even on a closed time-like curve, you could still draw arrows consistently around the curve. Mm-hmm. And so, unlike a Mobius strip, which is not yeah, orientable, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, it doesn't have any kind of shenanigans like like the mm-hmm. uh, Mobius strip or that. And yet, there it is. It not so. It's got two things that are really weird. So one is that you could try to travel from any point to any other point. And so, yeah, the 
the universe looks like it's all the matter is rotating around you. And it looks that way every single from every single direction. And what this does is it sort of tips the, you know, as you go out from any point, it's going to seem like the, well, to you and the, when you're looking at the picture of it, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the light cones are going to be, seem like they're tipping over. Mm-hmm. And that's going to, and as you go outward, if you accelerate, you'll be able to spiral around and go back and say, visit your birth. The other really weird thing, and I think this is what he thought was actually the weirdest thing about it, was that because all the, you know, the, all the light cones tip over, you can't, uh, draw a continue a, a global instantaneous slice of time. Hmm. So if you say, well, I want my slice of time to be entirely space-like, you know, an instant of time should be all space-like, there is no global sl- such slice. Because as you start to draw, extend it out, it becomes uh, time-like mm-hmm. because of the light cones tipping over into it. And so it, you know, so if you tried to stay t- space-like, it wouldn't, it, you, you can't do it. And so you can't then think this really disturbed him, uh, I think, more than the time travel. Because you can't then think of the universe as sort of unfolding in some kind of, uh, you know... T- Tense. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas, like, in the other, you know, in the in the more famous cosmological models, you know, like Friedman, Roberts, and Walker, you know, it's still relativistic. And so you could have, di- you know, uh, different observers, you know, measuring time differently and all that. but. Uh, but you could, you know, you could, uh, you know, pick particular, uh, well, there you usually use these, uh, you know, co-moving coordinates and pick a particular frame. But anyway, the point is you could pick a cosmic time and then think of the universe as evolving according to that cosmic time. But you just can't do that. Mm-hmm. There's no cosmic time in, in layerable space, space time. And there's no expansion either, right? No. And yeah, so it's it's not our space time. Sure, no, but it's, uh, as you said, you know, to just for the listener that may not be conversant with this, he, as you said earlier, you know, you solve the Einstein's equation in almost any context, and you get your name on it. And uh, many people have tried to do it, and there's very few that have their names on these models. So right. to come up with anyone, um, you know, let alone one that comports with, you know, cosmology, uh, you know, reasonable observations in cosmology, is a triumph, you know, mathematically. I guess the question that you know I have is is you know did he believe in it because it was before the really dispositive evidence of of um, you know expansion that that Hubble and his collab and actually Hubble's early data were incredibly you know coarse and mm-hmm. not dispositive right until the 30s 40s 50s they got better and better and even until the you know 50s and 60s people had arguments with the Big Bang you know it wasn't even the universe was expanding was was not taken seriously including by the inhabitant former inhabitant of this office, Jeffrey Burbage, mm-hmm. uh, who with his colleague, Fred Hoyle, uh, they went to their graves believing in the, uh, in the falsity of the Big Bang model and the, and the, and the truth right. of the quasi-steady state. So it wasn't nearly as accepted even when Girdle was alive. So did he believe it or did he think, oh, it's really cool for a logician to make the, you know, to get his name on a... <laughs> I don't think he believed it, um, mm-hmm. although I think there were attempts to tinker with it to make it a little more... Connect, you know, possible that, that it might be possible in some way to, to accommodate the data. Uh, but he had this really curious argument. Uh, and, you know, philosophers are puzzled about this argument for a long time. Is he, he says, there's this Girdle universe, 
you know, this, you know, his solution. It's a solution to the laws of nature, the Einstein field equations. And then he says that that showed that time in our world, which is not the girdle world, is ideal. And by ideal, I think he means, you know, just abstraction of our, of, right. you know, due to us, mm-hmm. uh, not due to the world. And so then, now you look at this argument and you think, well, what is the argument exactly here? This is very puzzling. And some people would point out, they'd say, um, you can't go from, you know, there's a possible, there's a possible world to a fact about this world. You know, so there's a possible world where there are unicorns. That doesn't mean there are unicorns here. And to this, and to, so, so people point this out. And then I, I think, well, this is crazy because we're talking about the world's greatest logician. Right. So he didn't make an elementary logic mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's clearly not what's going on. And so I think what he thought is that what he called this lapse of time, you know, and what you refer to as a tense, I think he thought that was essential to time. And that there was a, a, a world that obeyed our laws, but didn't have that time. Then meant that here, too, it might not be that, you know, that, that that's not a feature of time mm-hmm. even here. Mm-hmm. So the T is still the T. Right. And the, the, the T in the girl universe is still the T in the, you know, whatever universe we're in, mm-hmm. some kind of freed money and freed money and mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if it, and so if it didn't have lapse there, it's not lapsing here. Mm. And so it must just be that we sort of attribute the lapse to, to it. It's not fundamental. It's not fundamental. Interesting. Um, but we don't really know exactly what the argument was. It'd be cool to work out, you know, if it were, because the the you know the implication is yeah it's sort of the time is emergent or fictional or maybe not intrinsically fundamental you know part of elementary mm-hmm. reality and you see a lot of these <coughs> things that come out you know I had Carlo Rovelli on my podcast which the episode will uh, be out before this one most likely I had Roger Penrose on three or four times here's his book Cycles of Time mm-hmm. where he has this alternative model. Uh, which has the universe never really experiencing the Big Bang or the inflationary epoch that many cosmologists, the dominant, you know, kind of prevailing model right now, although it seems to lack decisive evidence, we may be in this Popperian, you know, no man's land where we can't falsify inflation because it could have happened, but mm-hmm. without enough energy to produce waves of gravity that my colleagues and I can detect. On the other hand, it could be that some alternative cosmology took place, but they don't make any falsifiable predictions such as Roger's model, it would just be, you wouldn't observe gravitational waves because there is no inflationary field to nucleate these, you know, quantum, uh, quanta of gravity. I want to ask you a question that I keep asking, and, and you mention it in the book as well. Uh, but I asked Roger and I asked, you know, people like Lenny Susskind and Frank Wilczek, we, we kind of use, at least to me, a circular type of logic, which is to say that, you know, we, we need to understand and have a quantum theory of gravity because we don't understand uh, the physics in extremely strong, you know, quantum physics in extremely strong gravitational scenarios, mm. such as at the singular near the singularity of a black hole, and uh, and such as at the origin of the of time or the Big Bang, as uh, as we might say. And I point out that both of those regimes are un, unverifiable; they're inaccessible. We can't get any information out from a singularity. We can get some notion of things on the event horizon of a black hole, but no more. 
um, you know, Hawking and and uh, and Penrose uh, with singularity theorems, you know, basically show that you're never going to be able to get back to absolute zero in time if it indeed exists. And Roger doesn't even believe there's an absolute zero of time. He believes in a cyclic cycle of aeons, as he calls them. So why are we so concerned with this theory of everything involving quantizing gravity if the only two regimes in which we can observe it would be unobservable or, or where it becomes applicable rather are unobservable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I <clears throat> I hope uh, that there would be some regime where it's observable. Uh, and I would expect it to be uh, actually in, in, in cosmology. Uh, is that, that's the, the yeah. biggest yeah. lab. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the biggest lab where, you know, and so it's running these natural experiments that we can't run. Right. Uh, and so I would hope that some of these things would, you know, so they seem really, 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 you know, so we're going to measure, you know, so the, the electrons have mass. They, they, there should be a gravitational effect, you know, inside the tiniest, you know, and just hydrogen making some sort of little, we should be able to make little gravitational corrections for, for whatever's going on there. Mm-hmm. And then inside, you know, and then when things clump, you know, when a star clumps up really, really tight, then there should be, there's got to be quantum effects that, at, at a certain uh, scale. And so we know that there is some physics that we don't know mm-hmm. that must operate in these cases, I think. Uh, so I think that's where we're kind of safe. Are there, are there, are, but those two cases, as you just pointed out, those two cases are cases that we're not going to ever observe. Right. Uh, but it could be that there's, um, you know, I don't know if, I mean, there might be something bootstrappy about this, but if you, if, if we think a different, so, so there's some work and in different interpretations of quantum mechanics. So, so, uh, Roger Penrose has stuff like this, where suppose you put in like a realistic collapse mechanism. So the quantum wave function collapsed as certain, you have a very specific sort of trigger for what does that. That might show itself in, you know, well, who knows? I don't know. It would be more a question for uh, for, uh, uh, for you. I, you know, what, does it show itself in the fluctuations? Does it show itself over extended over time through the universe? Mm. Uh, so they'll. So some of those theories will depart from. Uh, they'll have, they'll make predictions that are actually uh, non-standard that you could actually test and mm-hmm. um, maybe rule out or <laughs> or that. Yeah. So when I uh, think about that, first of all, yeah. You, so I don't answer any questions on my own podcast. I'm just <laughs> kidding. That's my prerogative. I actually was interviewed by Barry Barish for my own podcast uh, two weeks ago at his house in, in uh, Los <laughs> Angeles, which was kind of a treat. So I was answering his questions about why I'm so bitter and uh, so forth about <laughs> about not winning the Nobel Prize. But that's for another subject. Stay tuned for that special episode. But um, but thinking about that, you know, in just a little bit more depth. This concept of a singularity is is intimately connected with both the black hole and potentially with the Big Bang. And, of course, even observing these waves of gravity via their imprint on the cosmic microwave backgrounds, B-mode polarization, technically wouldn't take us back to T equals zero. It would be, you know, a thousand Planck times or something. It would be significantly after in Planck units, mm-hmm. the, or, the origin of time or the singularity itself. My question, you know, is kind of maybe it's philosophical. But I almost see a Zeno's paradox-like effect where 
we have no examples of something in the universe that is a singularity is infinite. Uh, because in order for something to be infinite, as you you know remember from your kids, you tell them I love you infinity. You say I love you infinity plus one. You know infinity minus one would have to be the temperature of the universe. You know one Planck time after the origin of the universe. Then infinity minus, but infinity minus one is infinity. So these questions of singularities are kind of perplexing in that we kind of are led to believe that they exist um, by extrapolation from our current time, but you know. Predictions about the future, as Yogi Berra said, are very uncertain. It's hard to make them. But even predictions about the past when they involve singularities, since we have no singularity evidence of any quantity that is infinite, why do we think, you know, why do we put so much stock in the existence of singularities philosophically speaking? Yeah. Uh, well, they're very disturbing because you don't know, well, A, you don't know what they are. I mean, even, even in general relativity, when, you, when we talk about singularity, well, the singularity theorems just show that, you know, all the world lines run at, you know, are incomplete, right? So they don't actually show there's like a, a whole. <laughs> so there's three notions of singularity, right? Mm -hmm. So it's uh, sort of this incomplete notion, you know, so geodesic, what's called the geodesic incompleteness. Yep. Then there's this sort of idea of a kind of curvature blow up, mm -hmm. where then there you're, there's your infinity. Uh, you know, so now mm -hmm. the, the curvature, curvature just blows up. Mm -hmm. And then you get this idea of like a hole, like, like right. a little point has been blocked out, like a kind of open right. open sewer cap in space-time where you just mm -hmm. were walking and then... Right, not a coordinate <laughs> singularity, an actual singularity, yeah. right. Man, uh, covered, not replaced. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, what's... I don't know, it, it's kind of interesting, I think, that, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the kind of geometry that you do classical physics, those notions coincide. And then you go to, uh, so in relativity, you use what's called a pseudo-Ramianian geometry, and then those notions come apart. Mm. And so we sort of think of the incompleteness as a, maybe it's like an indicator or a symptom of the other things, but we don't really know. And so what the heck is a singularity at all anyway? Right. Um, and then why is it, you know, everyone says, well, general relativity sows the seeds of its own demise by predicting these singularities. Then you think, well, why? Mm. Why is that so bad, actually, if it does have this incompleteness? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, who guys has, said that, right. that, that we get to decide how I mean, the universe should be? Quantum physics <laughs> traffics in there, right? Normalization, you know, bare mass, dressed mass. Uh, those yeah. are all corrections to the formal infinities that arose from considering, you know, Coulomb effects at infinitesimal distances. I mean, maybe, I mean, I'm just, you know, thinking aloud here, but... Uh, I mean, maybe the reason we don't like it is because all the places we see singularities elsewhere in physics, we don't really believe in them. We mm. think of them as part of the representation of the physics. Now. Right. So, like, the example I like is, you know, a, of a water drop coming out of your faucet. And, you know, when you model it physics, physically, you know, the water drop never breaks. You know, it just sort of gets in, gets like right. infinitely thin. Tenuous. And yes. then you, what you have to do is with your mind, bring in some scissors and cut it. <laughs> or just so, yeah. But we know what real water drops do before. Right. And so there's something is, you know, there's a mismatch there between the, re the mathematical representation mm -hmm. and, the, and the reality. And so we have no problem bringing out our mental scissors and snipping. Right. <laughs> right. And it's something, you know, water computers drop. can't... Uh, yeah, speaking of water, uh, you, should, you should enjoy some. Um, yeah, I mean, computers can't handle it. We have, you know, not a number. We have uh, things. It seems like the human mind is the unique 
entity that we know that can conceive of infinity and in fact multiple levels as you know of infinity there's different degrees of infinity um as my kids will point out when I say, you should have said, you love me infinity plus one, then they'll say infinity squared, then they'll say all at zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, I got some, uh, some annoyingly precocious kids, but the, but the, you know, kind of this thing that is so baffling, I think is so resilient to understanding is what makes time so interesting. I mean, there's so many books about time. I, I just reread A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, and I read it First, when I was 16 or 17, you probably were excited by it when it came out. And I didn't understand it. And I remember going to see <coughs> and hear Stephen Hawking speak in 95 at the Royal Astronomical Society meeting in London. And that was back when he could still respond in quasi real time using you know, his finger and his eyes. And someone asked him, you know, Professor Hawking, why'd you write this book? Nobody understands it. It's rumored that people have never even completed it, even you, you know, from cover to cover. Why'd you write this book? And he replied in that, you know, uh, that that uh, kind of iconic uh, iconic voice of his, if such a thing can be said, you know, because my daughter needed to go to college. <laughs> and I had uh, Leonard Maladna on uh, the, the podcast uh, about a month ago, and he was talking in all seriousness, he and I, about, you know, the need for Hawking to have a basic corporate function that he needed to support his medical care. Mm-hmm. He needed to support his kids, his ex-wife, his, you know, whatever it is. Med- and uh, it was a real need for him but in that book, the last sentence I was tweeting about this yesterday, you know, the last sentence in that book is, you know, if we could, you know, finally come up with a origin story for, you know, how time begins, something like that, then we would glimpse the mind of God. And it's kind of brings up, you know, this next question. First of all, why are physicists so, you know, in love with talking about God particles, the mind of God, God not playing dice, but we won't get into that now. Uh, for such an atheistically inclined uh, <laughs> body of, of humans. Um, but I want to ask you, in the context of you know time, we, we have so many different interpretations, Carlo Rovelli, uh, Roger Penrose, um, can they all be right? I mean, can they all be, <laughs> can they all be seeing the same aspects of the elephant and just describing it differently? Or, or to, to what extent is there a theory of time? Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think that there could be some winners and some losers here. Uh, I mean, whether we could ever know who is who, I don't know, but, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, To me, I, I divide it into basically two, two sorts of people. You know, so you know what's going on. I think what makes time so fascinating and why there are so many books and all of this is because, well, hey, I, I think of it as a, the with up there with consciousness is sort of one of the last great mysteries. And why is it such a mystery? I mean, physics has a time variable in it. Physics is one of our best theories. It's you know, I mean, we just put a you know a uh, uh, ro- another rover on Mars, a helicopter, uh, landed. helicopter. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's mm-hmm. one of the, and, and, and that, and all of those, and all of that theory required a time variable, right? And so it, that's all indirect confirmation for the way physics considers and time, Newtonian time at that, right? Yeah, <laughs> and I mean relativity to get to Mars. But I think what makes it so interesting is because you know our experience of time is just so so divorced from this. And so just like with the problem of consciousness, you know, you, you could look at, you know, all you want of, of brain scans and you're not mm-hmm. going to see right. anything. And you, you know, you're not, and they're going to dig around in the mind and then find a little, a little you there. Homunculus. And so with time, you have this massive, you know, you've got this idea of this flowing now and 
you know, so you divide the world into past, present, and future, and then this past, present moves. And also you endow the past and the future with different things. You endow, you think the past is fixed and settled, the future is open. Mm-hmm. You know, so where I would, I can't, you know, there's no knob I can, I can, uh, uh, toggle that's going to change where I was born. But there's a lot of buttons I can press that could, <laughs> could change where I die. Right. Uh, and so you have these massive differences. Be, uh, but now you look over at physics and you don't see any of that stuff. Right. I don't see the past and future. I don't see uh, a, a distinguished present. And I don't see differences between the past and future. Right. And so you have this gap. And then, I mean, that's where I, I got, had this kind of, I was working on all these kind of physics topics earlier in my career. And then uh, when I came here, there you know we were so good in cognitive science, and there were all these people working on time perception and that. And I got talking to them, and it, all of a sudden I realized, you know, that, that there's not a good theory of how, you know, it, it seems crazy that to me still that you don't have a good theory of how, uh, you know, the interaction between physical time and sort of human time. And so physicists, you'll have all these. Make side comments every now and then. So, like in Brian Greene's book, he'll talk about memory and talk and have a kind of proto theory of how, how this works. Mm-hmm. Seems perfectly fine to me, but but basically they say, oh, but all that flowing stuff, it's an illusion. So what they're doing in, is they're taking the problem, they're taking it off the desk of the physicist, they're putting it on the desk of the psychologist right. by saying it's an illusion. But then. But then the psychologist doesn't know it's on their desk. Right. The cognitive. So then it comes to the, then, you know, the philosophers are on the floor. Uh, <laughs> and so we, we get to whatever we falls off the desk. Of the desk. <laughs> and so then I had this idea of, you know, trying to explain this and really do it kind of a bit rigorously. And so this is not in my cartoon book, but in the other book. And the kind of picture I have is, you know, I'm wondering, you know, so we've got this critter who's going around, let's say, in a relativistic world. So, t- so physics is right about time. But they model time in this kind of tense flowing way. Why would they do that? And so what I try to show is that it would make sense in such a world, uh, even if the world isn't like that. Uh, given the environment, given the thermodynamic arrow, given the kind of challenges that we as organisms face. And so the way I think of it is, so I thought of it a little bit more like on the model of color. So you don't think of, you know, fundamental, you know, hydrogen, what color is it? You know, mm-hmm. you don't think of a, a fundamental world as colored. You know that it has to do with, um, you know, the, the type of creature you are and the relationship the relationship you are have with it. So it's not just physics, because it's not just the surface reflectance profile. Right. It's also, you know, how many types of how many rods and cones right. do I have, and what type? What type of creature am I? Mm-hmm. And then you, that opens up a kind of once you start thinking about it this way, it opens up a, a a fascinating avenue to explore that is still being explored. Which is, you know, well, why did that? Why does that creature have that that rod and cone structure? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, now look look at the colors of the fruits and stuff like this. What type of fruits does it eat? And then. But then, of course, now the evolutionary story is very complicated because maybe the fruits developed that way because there were creatures to eat them. But then you can think about the same kind of thing with time now, where you think, well, so I, I do think of you know some events as simultaneous and some not. 
Mm-hmm. Think of these two snaps. Uh, Bob Garosh, I think, in his book says that in your reference frame, that you have to do the snaps within one billionth of a second to get them space-like related to each other. Because oh, they're foot apart. Yeah. 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 And anyway, so they're, you know, so one is after the other, most likely, but I'm still yeah. judging them as, simu- you know, some of them are simultaneous and some not. Mm-hmm. Why doing this with audio and, and visual matching? And then I started looking at the, you know, different people who do it differently. So there's a retired pilot in England who had a small lesion in his brain and he will, um, I forget which way it goes. He, you say hi to him, he'll see your lips move and then hear you. Or maybe he'll hear you first and then see the lips move. Interesting. But a, mm-hmm. an observable gap. It's right. like 250, 250 milliseconds difference, which is roughly yeah, like yeah. halfway. It's like halfway, you know, in a, a major league pitcher when they pitch, it's sort of like right. halfway across, halfway <laughs> to home plate. The, 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 it's a halfway to home plate. It's just completely conscious and observable. Yeah. And so you have, so, and then it turns out that, you know, He's sort of an outlier, but not really, because every single, any two people, it's, it seems, have statistically significant differences in what things they bind together as simultaneous. Mm. So you and I in this room, if we could label all the events and if they're happening fast enough, you and I would differ. We would differ on a whole bunch of things. So if I said, you know, Brian, what's simultaneous with that snap? And right. you had to write the, that list down, right. and I did it. We would have different lists. Right. Some people are more are, you know, more accurate in terms of some absolute global time, I'm sure, than yeah. others, right? And it's then, like musical ability. Like, I have no musical ability or language ability or something. Yeah. Yeah, we probably all have different different abilities, yeah. And uh, actually, music is particularly interesting with this because, you know, you, you'll habituate your... You know, so if you are playing uh, the organ at King's, uh, King's College, Cambridge, mm-hmm. You know, the, the lag between you pressing the button and the actual noise is huge, but you will gradually erase that lag and it will seem simultaneous to you. Oh, okay. So there's all that kind of thing going on. And yet we don't notice any of it. Right. Right. Because well, when I do the snap, the noise is actually made by my finger hits here. Yeah. But, you know, there are people who are sound firsters and light firsters, yeah. depending on, you know, others that are touch. Right? Yeah. And so some of them might, Hear the noise when it's there. Yep. Others when it's been sitting there for a while. But it's simply crazy to think <laughs> that it wasn't this snap that caused you to hear that noise. Right. And so you don't have disagreement. It's so this wild, massive, hidden disagreement, but massive uh, agreement about what things happen now. Uh, but you know, if we change the speed, you know, the relative velocities of things that we were, you know, had to deal with and all of this stuff. If you had like time dilation in your face, mm-hmm. where you were meeting people relativistically, uh, yeah, right. then you know would we have come up with this kind of flowing now picture? Mm. Uh, the and then I, I started to actually also think about animals and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know seals they spend so much time underwater. The speed of sound is so different underwater right. than above. How do they sync mm-hmm. their audio and audio and visual giraffes? The when they're moving, you know, their hoof, you know, the, that ner- the signals up the nerves are pretty slow. I forget the speed, but they're not super fast. Mm-hmm. It could go all the way up to the head, right. all the way back to, you know, 19 feet, yeah, 19 feet times 2, 18 feet. <laughs> uh, 
it's uh yeah in the book i joke about yeah the giraffe maybe has not only a long neck but a long now yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's great well the last couple of uh minutes before at least i have to go and uh take the time to go pick up kids uh, carpool um there's this notion that i hear a lot about and i can't tell if it's ultimately uh trivial or if there's something really rich that's just being lost in my obtuse self. And that's this notion of a block universe. Uh, what, what is that? What is it relevant? Is it just a convenient way of thinking about it as, you know, kind of a God's perspective if, if such a thing could be conceived of? So yeah, what is this block universe that, that people, it seems to be in vogue now to the extent that such a thing can be. Yeah. Know. So in philosophy, they, they, they think of this two, they think of this roughly two types of theory, this kind of, Tense theory, where you've got this kind of moving now, and tense, not physically tense, but that's right, past tense, present tense, future right. tense, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, and then if you remove all the tense, then what you've got is a block. Uh, so you can think of it this way: like if you, you know, if you ha- you come across, you know, you're wandering around on campus, lost, you see one of these maps, and so the block universe is like the map. The tense theory is like the map with the red dot, mm. uh, you know, that says you are here yeah, now. Right. Uh, yeah, and so this is the so that's the spatial version of this, and so a lot of people say physics uh, is you know implies the block universe because there's no it's a, there's no red dot. Mm-hmm. Physics doesn't give you a red dot, right? And then you know somebody like me then thinks, well, the red dot is sort of formed by all the relationships. There is there's not really a, an extra thing in the world that's the red dot. It's right. just it's just, you know, your consciousness at, is at that location. And then it seems like, because it seems like you're, you're the be all and end all, you think that that's special, but there's nothing really special. Um, that said, so there's this debate between the block, the blockers and the non-blockers. I actually have a kind of minority view in, in philosophy, whereas I, I, I think the two views are the same. Uh, so I think the redescriptions of the same thing, unless you deliberately make them different. Uh, so that is, you know, when I say, you know, so the I, 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 so the block universe will, you know, the block the blocker will say, you know, dinosaurs they exist, they just exist, you know, just like things exist just spatially distant from you, but you can't see them. The things that exist temporally distant from you, they exist. They're all there on the block. Mm-hmm. The dinosaurs are there. The uh, but you know, but it's earlier. But that there is earlier than the the moment of utterance when we're speaking right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the the tensor uh, they think well, no, only that the only thing that exists is the present. Mm-hmm. But now they've got a problem because there used to be those dinosaurs, and so then they have to say something about those dinosaurs because those dinosaurs aren't. They're not just like a fiction, like Alice in Wonderland or something. They, <laughs> they, you know, they used to be here, right. and so now they have to say something. Whenever they say that thing, you can then translate that into the block that it exists. Ah, I see what you're saying. So that. I think you can translate back and forth without loss. Oh, Does that mean they're the same theory? Who knows? It's hard to say when there's two representations of the same thing versus two different representations. But if but if the two representations don't do any work. Either of them do any work that the other one doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, inclines me to think that they're really the same. Right. And so to me, I think it's this huge fuss for a hundred years since McTaggart 
this famous philosopher in 1908 wrote this paper. Then this huge fuss fighting over this, and I think it's all uh, much ado about. What's to do nothing. about nothing? It's because more than a also, dream because about I think, philosophy. yeah, because I think <laughs> if you have that tensed view, it doesn't actually explain your experience in any way. Right. And so, if it doesn't do any explanatory work, then I don't really. See, but they often say it does, mm-hmm. but it doesn't. And so, if it doesn't, then I don't see why I want to bother mm-hmm. fighting about it. Teleological purpose to it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, that cleared up something for me, and uh, just want to remark how. Much I'm looking forward to taking your class either in person or <laughs> remotely on pseudoscience. I can surely provide you with many examples of how I practice pseudoscience uh, quite frequently. After I buy my lottery ticket and get my palm read and get my horoscope read, <laughs> I will have plenty of fodder for you, uh, Craig Callender, uh, Director of the Center of Practical Ethics here at UC San Diego, a treasured colleague. And I think, though not the first UCSD professor on this, a first philosopher on the podcast. So okay. I want to uh, well, commend you for that. Yes. And I have some parting gifts for you, including finger puppets and uh, space dust. So, Greg, thank you so much. I hope we can do a part two someday in the future, if such a thing can be said to exist. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.